Good morning. It's good to see everybody here this morning. I am glad to be back in town. I have been on the road for, it seems like, about the last three weeks. not sure exactly when I was last here in, in services with you, but it is good to, uh, to be back. As Matt mentioned, we're, um, we're continuing in a series. Uh, and that series is God Never Said That, or I guess I've seen it described a couple of different ways of maybe misunderstanding the things uh, uh, that are misunderstood sometimes in the scriptures. And so this morning our subject is going to cover, uh, it doesn't matter what you do, was roughly the topic uh, lesson. I'm going to focus particularly on a, a significant portion of that misunderstanding, which deals with the subject of once saved, always saved. You know, there's many people, there's many uh, Christians, many churches who be believe and profess that the Bible teaches once saved, always saved. That we can be saved once and for all through just a repentant and faithfulness in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to start this morning by telling you that I have numerous friends, as I'm sure you do. I have family that takes this position. So while I want to respect the understanding of their belief, I hope to give you evidence, biblical evidence, that directly opposes this position and this concept. I'm not going to particularly name any, any denominations. My, my uh, intent is not to offend the faith of others. But I believe it's a critical misunderstanding that we have in the Christian world because frankly it deals directly with ours, with others' um, salvation. Their understanding and the direction they have, the pursuit that they have of their salvation and the promise that we all hope of eternal life. Now I'll note as I uh, have been putting this together and travel on, on typically in plane rides, Putting some of these thoughts together, I started realizing, you know, I, I think this whole series could have just been on uh, s this one topic alone. Uh, but I do believe this particular subject is really uh, an important one as far as the misunderstanding of a lot of a lot of Christian teachings across the nation, across this world. A widely misunderstood belief. So the once saved, under, uh, once saved, always saved is essentially this. Once a person accepts Jesus Christ into their hearts as their personal Lord and Savior, once they possibly say the sinner's prayer, and we are all familiar with that, once they confess with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believe on Jesus in their hearts, once a person does that, then that person is saved. That person has a one-way ticket to heaven. Whoops, son. They have a one-way ticket to heaven. And there's absolutely nothing that they can do that will derail that train. What does that mean, in other words? In other words, heaven is guaranteed. One, as they, as they put it, has absolute assurance they will go to heaven. That's the doctrine in a nutshell. You see, the reason behind the doctrine is that since we are saved by faith and faith alone, and since works play no role whatsoever in gaining our salvation, then works can play no role whatsoever in losing our salvation. In other words, once you are saved, 
There isn't anything you can do to lose your salvation, and that includes sin. Now I want to point out that, and you're going to hear some things that you go, well, I'm not sure on this exactly, because there's a lot of things, remember, we are very common in across the world in a lot of beliefs, but there's some specifics that we're going to see that are, are, are critical differences. You see, belief and faith are major tenets of, of most of, of, of our beliefs across the world. Baptism will sometimes factor into that. Some believe that baptism would be more considered that of a work. So it's not a strong position. It takes more of the tenet of, of this. So once a person has accepted Christ as Savior, might they wonder if it is ever possible that they could lose that salvation? You see, what if they commit a sin? Is it possible to be saved and lose your salvation? For many believers... On the once saved, always saved, the answer is a resounding no. Once a person has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, he or she is forever saved. You see, this is referred to as the doctrine of eternal security, often referred to as the belief of once saved, always saved. I would ask you this morning, how many people... Do you know how many people across this nation, this world, would affirmatively answer, yes, they believe in Jesus Christ, yet they've never donned the doors of a church? Maybe in decades, maybe they, maybe they attend a church, but in decades they've never attended church, but they will claim affirmatively, I believe, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But certainly through their own admittance, they don't even feel it is it even imperative to attend church. You see, there are those that because this widely quoted verse will be lost in their own misunderstanding. And the oversimplification and the application of this verse, it's like the easy button. Just <laughs> say the sinner prayer, accept Jesus Christ in your heart. It's like the easy button, done. One-way ticket to heaven. You know, this subject has been the debate, certainly within the Church of Christ, for many years uh, as, we, as we take positions different from other churches. So what do the scriptures say about salvation? This morning, I'm going to try to give you generally what I believe to be the major principles in scriptures that they look to for this concept, and, and I believe the understanding of this, uh, again, widely misunderstood belief. The once saved, always saved. You see, they would start with the belief that there are several reasons why a person can be confident in their eternal security. First and foremost is the evidence that we see here. <clears throat> and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we're very familiar with this particular verse. Whosoever believes in him is not condemned. You see, one of the things we're going to see throughout this morning is, and it's very, uh, again, a, a part of our, uh, of our studies, 
we can take any piece of the Bible and read it out of context or not put it in context with other passages. And we'll see that that is, is often the, the uh, thing that leads to a lot of, of a misunderstanding. You see, according to this doctrine, once we've accepted Jesus Christ in our hearts as our personal Lord and Savior, then God, like a judge in the courtroom, declares us innocent. We're hidden with Christ. We're, you're going to see here in Colossians 3, verse 3, for you have died in your life as hidden with Christ in God. This again is another tenet. There is nothing that can happen that will cause God to change his judgment towards you. You're convicted of sin, but God has, has, has permanently put a seal on you as you are innocent. He renders a verdict of innocent. The innocent this innocent verdict is then applied to all who are hidden in Christ Jesus, all the believers. And once the verdict has been rendered, once you've been declared innocent, there is nothing that will ever separate you or cause God to reverse this judgment. After all, you believe you're hidden with Christ. So how does one go about arguing this doctrine of once saved, always saved? Well, I believe we can see that we'll have a whole bunch of scripture, but I'll I believe you can also use a little bit of logic as well. I'll start with a little bit of logic and then uh, we'll move into a whole bunch of scripture. The first question I'd like to take a look at is what happens if a baby dies? And I sometimes, I know sometimes we like to avoid these theoretical questions, but I think follow me if you will on this one. If a baby dies, does it go to heaven or hell? Does that child go to heaven or hell? I believe the majority of folks that I've come across with who believe in once saved, always saved, will also believe that, that the children who die before they are old enough to commit a sin are saved. They go to heaven. Even though the baby hasn't been able to make a confession of faith, that baby still will find the treasures of heaven. But you see, this belief leads to a logical contradiction. Follow with me along here now. <laughs> now consider if that baby dies and she goes to heaven. Then that means that baby was in essence saved while it was still alive. However, if that child does not die, if that child grows up and starts committing sin, yet never makes a personal commitment to Christ, never accepts Jesus into her heart, and as her personal Lord and Savior, then what happens? Is she still saved? Well, the once saved, always saved would, would again, the answer would be no. Which means what? That there was a point somewhere in that child's life where it went from being saved to being unsaved. But you see, this is a big problem with the once saved, always saved. If, if once saved, always saved is true. Because this doctrine teaches that a person cannot go from the state of being saved to the state of being unsaved. Which means if the baby was saved, then we can never be unsaved. Even if he or she grows up to be an, an unbelieving moral reprobate. Because no once saved, always saved would, would agree that an unbelieving moral reprobate is saved. 
So those folks who believe in this and take this really staunch position that once saved, always saved, no matter what, yet they'll also believe that babies that die go to heaven. There's a logical contradiction in that belief. Now, I want to follow this up with more of a, that's just some basic logic I think you can apply out there. But there are so many verses that more completely and clearly and directly oppose the teaching of once saved, always saved. Romans 8. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And whom he also called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. This verse tells us that from the moment God chooses us, it's as if we were glorified in presence in, in his presence in heaven. There's nothing, nothing that can prevent a believer from one day being glorified because God has already purposed it in heaven. You see, once a person is justified, their salvation is guaranteed. Now, I don't want to completely derail on, on this particular subject, but I'll tell you, we have some friends. They go to a church where she, we just happen to know, happen to know one of the lucky ones. She believes she's part of the 144,000, she and her family. She's made it clearly known to us. She has four kids, husband. I think at least three of them are married. I don't know in the 144 how many more there are left, 144,000. I don't know how many more there are left to go, but I assume over years that number's getting eaten up. But I'll say I happen to know one of the lucky ones. I don't know if their kids, spouses may be included in that. But I will say that oddly enough, her husband's involved in a ministry that, that does, produces water to other countries and spreads Christianity. What a great blessing that is to those countries. Unfortunately, it has no bearing on their soul or salvation, but it, at least he's spreading the goodwill. You see, people can get caught up in various things that they just believe that they're the chosen, they're the, they're the called. Another belief, the forgiveness of God through Christ is, is to, sufficient to cover all the sins, past, present, and future. There is nothing a person can do that God can't forgive. This doctrine is supported by Romans 8, 38 and 9. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is an awesome verse. I love that verse. And it should inspire us. We can put a lot of faith and trust in that. But does it say that once a person is born, again, it is impossible for him to lose his way and be lost? In fact, I'm not even really sure that this verse is primarily referring to our salvation, but more and so about the unconditional love of God that he asked for man, not our unconditional salvation. But this is a verse that is used. You see, I believe, and we'll talk about it more, that salvation can be conditional. You might notice that sin was not included in the list of things which are unable to separate us from God. You'll often hear from the once saved, always saved. <clears throat> Romans verse 8, or Romans 8, uh, or actually verse 1 and 2. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now again, a lot of these scriptures we have very common beliefs in, right? Taken in context. There's no condemnation. As a Christian, I agree 100% with this verse. For those that are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. But here's the thing. See, see folks that takes the once saved, always saved, they'll say, hey, see, once we're in, in Christ, we cannot be condemned. But I don't see anything in this passage that tells me I can't fall away from Christ Jesus. That I can't at some point in the future reject Christ. It's not there. But someone will say, but wait a minute. Well, I say, it says I'm set free from the law of sin and death. That's right. But again, it doesn't say that I've lost my free will to at any time in the future choose to go back to that law of sin and death. If I desire Paul tells us in Romans 6, verse 15 through 16, What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? You see, here's the thing. Does total freedom from condemnation, what about sin? What about when we have sin? You see, Paul tells the Romans that they're no longer under the old law, but under the law of grace. So according to this doctrine that we're talking about, he's talking to the saved, those that are hidden in Christ Jesus, those for whom there are no condemnation. Are you following me? And what does Paul say to the saved? Does he say that since they are under grace, that no sin will ever be held against them? Not quite. He tells them if they sin, if they yield themselves to sin, they will become slaves of sin, which will lead to death, spiritual death. Again, I agree that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus as long as they stay there. But that's the problem. Staying in Christ Jesus Avoiding sin. When you sin, you see, you separate yourself from Christ. When we sin, we're no longer in Christ. The big problem for folks who believe in the doctrine of once saved, always saved, is the problem of sin. They don't know what to do with it. You see, to get around the problem of sin, I've had people tell me either one of two things is true. That once you're saved, sin is no longer really has any consequences on you. Remember, your freedom from condemnation. Just go about doing what you want. Sin has no longer consequences for you, at least no consequences in, in terms of your salvation. Remember, there's nothing you can do to derail your one-way ticket. Or the other answer, response is, that once you're saved, <laughs> Hey, you know what? You're just not going to sin anymore. And if you do sin, it's a sign that guess what? You were never saved in the first place. <laughs> How many times have you ever heard that one? If you've ever opened up these discussions. Well, you just weren't really saved in the first place. Or you wouldn't have gone about sinning. 
you see both of these arguments however contradict scripture. So let's look at the second argument first. Is it true that once you're saved you'll no longer sin or if that you or if that if you do sin it means you really weren't saved in the first place? Romans 7:15 For I do not understand my own actions Paul speaking for I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. Was Paul saved according to these standards? Here we see Paul, we believe to be a very saved individual, telling us that plainly he was still having to avoid sin. Does that mean that Paul really wasn't saved? After all? No self-respecting believer in once saved, always saved would, would say such a thing, I believe which means it's contrary to the scripture to say that once a person is saved, they can no longer sin. It's also contrary to scripture to say that a person who's made an act of faith in Christ does sin, that it's a sign that they were really not saved in the first place. There's just a lot of twisting and turning when you take this position. You see, Paul's comments in Romans 7 prove that, prove that, but you can also read it in even some more of his letters where he costly is warning the Christians about the need to avoid sin. If a Christian cannot sin, then why would Paul want them to, so much to avoid sin or if he felt it had a bearing in their life? Hebrews 10, 26, 27, for if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of truth, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I thought we couldn't sin deliberately after we've received the knowledge of truth. That's the position some take on the once saved, always saved. You, there's nothing that you could do deliberately that would affect this, that would cause you to have fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire because once saved, always saved. Do what you want. Your actions have no bearing. Do you see a problem with this? Do what you want and you just keep further, moving further and further away from Christ. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? You see, the writer of Hebrews is talking about someone who has been sanctified, made holy by the blood of the covenant. This can't describe someone who has not accepted Christ. So he must be talking about those who are saved. when he's referring to the, those that would trample the Son of God, who profane the blood of the covenant, outrage the spirit of grace. You see, a saved person cannot do those things, can they? They can if you read and believe in some of the scriptures. Certainly you can. And after, you, after these, someone has done these things, does it still say they're saved? 
No, it says they'll receive punishment and a fearful prospect of judgment and the fury of fire. The once saved always saved. There's a, that's a problem with that. Now again, you have to track along with some of these things because again, we're going to be in concert on a lot of these things, but it's, it's how again we respond um, with our faith. Now the other argument mentioned above, which is probably the more common argument regarding this problem of, of sin, once you're saved, you can still sin, but that sin is not counted against you. That's a fairly strong stance in a lot of the once saved, always saved. Of course, out of, but, but it's followed up. But of course, out of the love of God, you will avoid sin as best you can, but it is possible nonetheless to sin. However, every time you see sin, God the Father sees only God the Son's innocence because you've been hidden in Christ, right? And therefore, he doesn't hold that sin against you. And we understand that principle. Or if he does hold your sin against you, it's only to the degree that you will not have as high a place in heaven. Have you ever talked with somebody about that? They believe that, that this judgment that we're talking about, it, it will affect you here in this life and it may even affect your ranking in heaven. You've got a ticket to heaven, it just is in what place? I know some of these things sound silly, but I can tell you I've had some of these discussions with friends. I've had some with family. Your position in heaven might be affected, but the fact remains that you're going to be in heaven. You see, the problem is here that nowhere does the Bible say such thing. If sinning doesn't affect your salvation, the question is again, why does Paul so many times warn the Christians he writes against to avoid sin? It simply makes no sense. Let's look at this, uh, Romans 16 and 15. What then are we to sin because we are not under grace? We'll go back to this. Because we are not under law but under grace? He said, remember, he said, by no means do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. You see, again, Paul is talking to those who are under grace. They're the saved. He said, does he say you are not to worry for your sins will not be held against you? No. He's specifically speaking to the saved. He tells them if they yield themselves to sin, it will lead to death. And he's not talking about physical death because he's, his, this death is contrasted with righteousness, right? In essence, Paul is saying that yielding yourselves to sin on a constant basis will lead to unrighteousness. Why is he telling them this? That if they lead to sin to unrighteousness? That's not possible if once saved, always saved is true. First Corinthians 6, 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Why does Paul warn them to shun fornication? Because all we have to do is go back a few verses. <clears throat> Are you done not know that the unrighteous will uh, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
don't worry, your sin doesn't matter. Here again, remember, Paul is talking to the saved, telling them, reminding them to avoid fornication because he just told them fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice that nowhere does Paul say avoid fornication out of your love to God, but if you do fail, rest assured that it won't be held against you. I'm going to go back up in here. Know of any churches that have homosexuals standing in the pulpit today? I do. Think there's a problem with that? Do what you want. Won't be held against you. Ephesians 5, verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or pure is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance of the kingdom of God. Again, just, we have multiple scriptures. By committing any of these sins, the righteous become the unrighteous. The saved can become the unsaved. Again, it doesn't mean we have a ch- don't have a chance to, to resolve that. But as someone who believes in one saved, always saved, if it is possible for a saved person to commit adultery or fornication or steal or be greedy, and if they say no, ask them where the Bible says this. It doesn't. If they say yes, then ask them if those folks still go to heaven. Because if they commit these sins and do not repent of them, if they say yes, a person can go to heaven. They're contradicting the very clear words. Because again, they don't talk about repentance. They just have faith. Faith and alone. Once you, once you believed, you're good. Go on about business. No need for worrying about your sins. No worry for needing about repentance. I could go on and on with various scriptures that I believe talk about that sin has no consequences in regard to your salvation or that once you're saved, you will no longer sin. We'll move to Matthew 5. A long reading here. We clearly get this. You've heard it said that you should not have committed adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What do we see here? You've heard it said that you should not commit adultery, but I say that you're a believer and that that sin won't be held against you. <laughs> Absolutely not. That's not what it's... He's very clearly telling us that there's a consequence for sinning. And what we earn through that is hell. And Jesus is talking about saved people here. We know this because he's telling them that they can avoid hell by just even plucking out an eye. Now he uses a graphic description here. Some say, well, that's figurative. Some say it could be literal. I'm not going to make a call on that today, but I think he's trying to make the point. You see, according to once saved, always saved, people go to hell because they don't believe, because they lack faith. If an unbeliever avoids sin, he still goes to hell because he's an unbeliever. So the people Jesus is referring to as going to heaven, avoiding sin, they have to be believers in this. They must be people who have been saved. But they can't be people who have been saved according to once saved, always saved. 
standpoint. Because sin is not held against people who are saved. This passage is a big problem for the, for the once saved, always saved camp. Because they believe you can get to heaven by faith and faith alone. But you see, if that, if that position is true, neither can he be talking to believers. Neither, uh, he, neither can he be talking to believers as, as the sin will supposedly not cause a believer to go to hell. Yet the folks Jesus is talking to will clearly end up in hell if they don't do what is necessary to avoid sinning. That's what he's saying here. Why didn't he just say, believe? Why did he make it simple for us? Just believe in me and you'll be saved. Believe in me, no condemnation. Why would he go to all the extreme of talking about the description of plucking an eye on eye and cutting off your hand? Again, a, a lengthy reading. We won't read all of that, but but roughly he's talking about you, you can be broken off as that branch of an olive tree. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. He said, if you remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. He said, then you'll say branches are broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. What he's saying is if God didn't spare the natural branches of the odd tree, neither will he spare you. Are you catching the threat there? We'll go back and read verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. You see, we won't be broken off from the olive tree of Christ only if we can continue in his kindness. But what does it say if you don't continue in your faith and kindness? Then we too will be cut off. Is that the language of eternal security? Is Paul here reassuring his readers they have nothing to fear since they've already been grafted into the olive tree? You're set. There's nothing you can do that would cause you to break off I don't think so you see one of the guiding principles is that that salvation in Christ is not temporary it's eternal again one of the one of the commonly referred to verses again by the once saved always saved my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand my father has given them me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of all Paul's hand. Again, I think he's talking about trying to teach them that no one can come to the Father but by me. He was trying to teach that he was a, uh, the Messiah. That people could be drawn to him by the Father and followed him as the one that they could receive eternal life. But Jesus definitely did not say that his followers couldn't ultimately fail due to their own, to the fault of their own. John 15, 4. 
Abide in me and I in you, as the branches cannot be fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches again. Whoever abides in me and I am him, it is he that bears much fruit. Far apart from me you can do nothing. If any does not abide in me, is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire burn. Can we put ourselves out of God's hands? Absolutely. So I want to now shift gears here a little bit real quickly here toward the end. Let's start with Colossians 1 and verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and in which I, Paul, became a minister. Do you see the condition? Do you see the turning of the thought? You see, every promise of salvation in Scripture has a condition. If we fulfill the condition, the promise is ours. what we read here you see to commit a sin is to grant to transgress or disobey these laws the lust that can be in us it can contaminate us and, and motivate us by our, our sinful nature but we see that holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this some have made shipwreck of their faith who's he talking to again here That's clearly not once saved, always saved. He said you rejected it and you made a shipwreck of your life, of your faith. Hebrews 3 and 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called a day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Again, do you see the condition? If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, that's contradictory to once saved, always saved. You see, we know that we have an advocate of the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And if we truly are sorry and repentant, there's an abundance of forgiveness in Jesus. But what he's saying here, that the danger is repeatedly yielding to the same sin over and over. Where we become hardened. We're not as sorry as when we first made that sin. We're not even as thoughtful about that sin. We become more and, hard, more, and more hardened, and we finally end up with, what does he say? An evil heart of unbelief. And we can lose our confidence. And what does that lead to? It means that we depart from the living God. We, if you remember that previous verse about can't be snatched from the hand, we put ourselves outside of his hand. So how can we prevent such a hardening taking place? When our experience can be that we repeatedly fall into temptation. The good news of the gospel is that we don't need to repeatedly fall into temptation. 
Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. We see that through obedience, through grace, that we, that through our obedience we receive his grace. You see, what it's saying here is Jesus overcame and, and now he can help us to overcome. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 1 Peter 1, 4, 1 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. See, Jesus is there for us to help us overcome. He doesn't say, hey, once you believe, go on doing what you're doing. I know that you may fall into temptation. But your faith alone isn't going to mean that, that you don't need to be aware of these things. Faith and a repentant heart and continually the desire um, to seek Jesus' forgiveness. Here's another step that we can take. Avoid the false sense of security. Again, contradictory to the once saved, always saved, because they would say you never have a sense of lack of security. But I would tell you the scriptures teach to avoid a false sense of security. Philippians 2, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Second Peter, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your call and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Again, there are a lot of other scriptures that could be used to establish the once saved, always saved doctrine. Following the same pattern of being misinterpreted and misapplied. You see, when you take that position, just one clear scripture that contradicts that teaching is enough to show that that teaching isn't biblical. Yet, in fact, we can find many passages that we believe teach the opposite of that doctrine. Showing that one must meet and continue to meet certain conditions to receive God's gift of salvation. God wants to give us that gift of salvation. He also wants us to earnestly heed for it and desire and strive for it. Not say a sinner's prayer and then back to life. I'm good. I'll go do what I want. The one thing we can also, another thing we can also remember, we'll end with this, God will never forsake us. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with whatever you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The not, we are sure that God will never leave us or forsake us as Christians, right? But the, the Bible never says it's impossible for us to leave or forsake God on our own and possibly lose out on that gift of salvation. I'm going to leave you with various other scriptures. I won't read through all those. But just evidence of tremendous more scriptures that, that reinforces the thought that it's a, it's a continual process. Again, I've, I've had a lot of, I guess, I won't say the pleasure of having discussions, but I've, I've had the ability to have a lot of discussions on people that take various levels of position in the once saved, always saved. For me, it's, it's, 
it's not just troubling, it's kind of scary. Because it's such an oversimplified uh, understanding of what the scriptures teach. Many of the people that I've talked to outside of my family, I will say the bulk of my family that takes this position, uh, actually are, are, are very, very godly people. They live very good lives. I believe they're misunderstanding in this uh, position. But I also have a lot of people that take this position and as I said, they're not very involved in the church. You can see it in the moral decay. Uh, and they just don't really see any problem with it. But I guarantee you, once you ask that question, do you believe you're saved? They will absolutely and affirmatively every time say, absolutely, because I believe and I have faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, whether they're living it out in their life or not. These are just a few examples. Um... Again, that we may say, I guess I can leave that up there in case someone's we, that we must continue in the faith to the very end. Notice that a lot of those verses say if we hold fast, if we continue, you see, salvation is conditional on our continuing the end, end to the end. We're indeed assured, we can be insured of our salvation if we continue in our effort to please God. I hope that some of the things that I've said this morning maybe have, have caused you to think. Um, again, I, it's a, a subject that I think could take a lot of different spurs of, of study, uh, could go a lot of different directions with this, but I hope that I've said something that, that uh, again, will cause you to think. If there is any way uh, the, the, the church can offer its services to you, we ask it that you would uh, come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation.